Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll take a look at DEFRA's shiny new environmental improvement plan. We'll ask how on earth the department is going to deal with 1,200 newly discovered pieces of retained EU law, and we'll find out why environment agency officers are preparing for strike action later this week. Then, in this episode's deep dive, we'll be talking trash, looking at the policy outlook for the UK's energy from waste industry. And then finally, Alice and Simon will be along to tell you about the EU's new Green Deal industrial plan. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm here with Pippa Neal and Tess Colley. We've got some big green policy announcements to talk about this week, and this episode is shaping up to be more jargon-filled than most. But don't worry, as always, we'll do our best to help you navigate your way through the labyrinth of environmental acronyms and buzzwords. And hopefully by the end of it, you'll know your EFW from your elbow and your EIP from your EPPS. Our first big green news story of this week relates to one of those acronyms, the EIP, which stands for Environmental Improvement Plan. And this was the rarest of things, a statutory deadline that DEFRA actually managed to meet. There was a big launch of the plan last week by Therese Coffey at the Camley Street Natural Park in central London. And this had echoes of the launch of the 25-year environment plan five years ago at the London Wetland Centre. Anyway, Tess, can you explain what the EIP is and why it's important? Yes. So the EIP, well, the EIP is intended to outline all the steps um, that government tends to take to improve the natural environment um, and including the measures it intends to take uh, to meet its targets that is just set on biodiversity, trees, water, um, marine protected areas, air quality, that sort of thing. Um, it replaces the 25-year environment plan that uh, you you just mentioned. Um, and it was the, the EIP was a requirement of the Environment Act passed in 2021. Um, and the government's going to have to report on its progress every year. And the Green Watchdog, the Office for Environmental Protection, will also report on the government's progress against it. So it's really important because it's setting the framework, basically, um, for what DEFRA and the wider government, because it's, it's meant to be a cross-government document, if you like, not just in DEFRA. Um, it's the, the framework that we will all be holding them uh, to account for. Um, so that's why it's important. It's included, like it said, some measures. It's also got some more interim targets published in it. Um, we've had the long-term ones, which were... Well, I suppose controversial is, is the appropriate word. A lot, lot of people didn't like them. And we've got this apex target. It talks about to improve nature. So that's that's the, those are the big takeaways from it. Um, but yeah, I know we're going to go on and talk more about it. I mean, DEFRA obviously tries to make a big, a big splash with the launch. They see it as a big deal. But was there actually anything that's genuinely new in there in terms of announcements or policy commitments? Yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to say there's anything especially new. There were the headline announcements that you mentioned about every household will live within a 15-minute walk uh, of green space or water and new you know, plans for new or expanded national nature reserves, um, which, of course, they, you know, they're welcome. Uh, they have been welcomed. But a lot of the other things, a lot of campaigners say, well, this is it's sort of just a reframing of things that we already sort of knew were happening. There's one thing that does sound pretty new. It's the launch of a multi-million pound species survival fund, that, which is what they're calling it, um, to create and restore habitat. And this is, you know, I think this is specifically meant to be linked to uh, that big target to halt the decline of species by 2030. Though it's not exactly clear how many millions within the multi-million pound fund there will be and how it will work. Um, but, you know, there's, there's other bits and bobs which are quite interesting. Like they talk about considering expanding environmental permitting conditions to, to cover dairy and intensive beef farms. 
that would be a quite an interesting thing if it happens and updating the green finance strategy um which we knew that was coming though so that's it's a big part of the plan but it's it, we did kind of know it was coming um so yeah i think in terms of actual new shiny new policy there's not a huge amount and that might be to do with the fact that they've just got this plan out after lots and lots and lots of delays which we've talked about on this podcast before yeah it's a bit freaky how we had a a whole section last time about the culture of delay and then defer actually <laughs> hit the deadline. I know. They the must podcast. have been listening, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Tess. And, and people, what's the what's the reaction to the plan being from from campaigners? I think to some extent it's been mixed with like some groups welcoming certain parts. So I know um, Tom Fyans, who's the interim chief executive of countryside charity CPRE said, for example, that the target to restore 30,000 miles of headrows by 2037 is an incredible step forward. So there's kind of elements that have been welcomed. But I mean, as always seems to be the case, the main reaction, I think, was that the plan was lacking in ambition. Um, Richard Benwell, who's chief executive of Wildlife and Countryside Link, raised specific concerns over the fact that there was nothing in the plan to show how the proposed measures will actually enable the goals to be met. Um, And he said at the moment, the necessary evidence-based approach isn't apparent and that it leaves serious doubts about whether the policies and investments in the plan are sufficient to meet targets. Um, He also kind of said that the EIP makes no long-term funding commitment to deliver on the goals. Um, And he, apart from which Tess mentioned, the Species Survival Fund, but that was pretty vague, as Tess said. We don't know how many millions or when this is going to happen or what Mm. it even is. Um, so Ben Richard Benwell kind of said, hopefully the spring budget will set out some of the investment that's needed. But yeah, at the moment, it, we're not too sure. Yeah, I think a lot of what the when you read it, read between the lines or even between the lines really of the plan is how big a deal farming is going to have to play in all this, all the big farming reforms that we've reported on before. So much of the government is relying on it so much to deliver so much of this plan. Um, but we don't, you know, a lot of people are asking, where's the long-term funding for all, for the for the, the farming budget and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think the spring the spring budget will have a lot to answer for. Mm. Has the um, Office for Environmental Protection said anything about it yet? Yeah, I don't think that. so. Yeah. I, was, I don't, yeah. I think they, they don't, they tend to take their time take a little bit more. Take their time and say something fairly, yeah. <laughs> uh, Fairly interesting. In They'll come out with a, like a horribly explosive report in, yeah. in a year. <laughs> <laughs> and there was there was another significant related development last week, which was on another acronym, the EPPS, which was finally laid before Parliament. Um, Tess, can you explain what the EPPS is and and what the response has been to it being laid before Parliament last mm, week? Yeah, so it's the Environmental Principles Policy Statement. And it is sexier than it sounds. Um, I promise. It's a, it says it's a document which outlines how five environmental principles, including the precautionary and polluter pays principles, uh, should be interpreted and proportionately applied uh, by ministers when making policy. So basically, uh, it means the way the way that these principles, which are you know quite big themes in environmental policy making and law, how they are applied is dependent on the nature of this policy statement rather than any other definition of the principles that you might know. Um, and the ministers will need to pay due regard to this statement when making policy, uh, though an exception is made for the Ministry of Defence and Treasury. 
but this uh, this EPPS has been exceedingly delayed. Um, and th- so there was a fair bit of relief when it was actually published. People have been wanting to have this out for absolutely ages because there's so much big policy going on at the moment across government and it's a bit of a massive governance gap that you haven't got these environmental principles being applied. Um, but it's been published, but it doesn't actually mean it's been enacted exactly yet because uh, the government has said it won't you know, it, it won't actually be fully in force until November this year. And the reaction has been a bit like, well, why on, it's been delayed so long. Why on earth are we having to wait another, what's it, like nine months to November? Because mm. um, the government says it's got to have an implementation phase so that government departments can work out how to... They can get out all the nasty stuff before November. Yeah, so <laughs> they can do all the damage before yeah. then. Um, yeah, that's uh, not what the government said, but that's what some people might say. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we're going we're gonna to move on now to our uh, our third, I think it's our third acronym of this episode. So this is R-E-U-L, which uh, stands for Retained EU Law. Some might say rule. Um, depends what you feel like doing. Um, so <laughs> so uh, we, we've discussed this this on uh, last episode of the Eco Chamber, the Retained EU Law Bill. Um, and it's, uh, it's a highly controversial piece of legislation that contains a a sunset clause, which means that EU era laws could expire at the end of this year, and obviously lots of those laws are environmental ones. And Pippa, there was a, there was an update to the uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's um, retained EU law dashboard last week. Can you, can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so last week it emerged that a further one thousand three hundred pieces of legislation had been added to the dashboard. Um, This is kind of after we talked about a lot on End's report and on the podcast how there was this sense that no one had any idea just how many laws there were. So now Mm -hmm. it appears there's a further 1,300. But what's significant is that 1,211 of these laws fall in DEFRA's remit. Um, So DEFRA now has nearly four times the amount of laws compared to the Treasury, which is the department with the second highest number of laws to review. Of these laws, the dashboard shows that so far DEFRA has amended or appealed just 328, meaning it has 1,443 pieces of laws to decide it, the like decide the fate of by the end of the year. Um, so yeah, Ruth, you know this has kind of really shocked a lot of people, and I think it just shows the kind of extent of this legislation, and it's really worrying to many green groups. And mm. Ruth Chambers said this huge influx just highlights the huge environmental risk of the bill. But I think interestingly is perhaps this isn't the end of this. Um, Shosha, that one of our reporters at end, spoke to Dr. Joelle Grogan, a senior researcher at UK in a changing Europe, and she said that there's likely that there'll be more laws identified. So I guess watch this space and let's see. So kind of ferreting around down the back of the sofa in deference, <laughs> trying to find some more laws. It's pretty uh, worrying stuff. So there are kind of clearly some very reasonable concerns that we've discussed before on the podcast about whether whether DEFRA has the capacity to work through those laws in time for, before the sunset clause and also the the kind of issue around this being a distraction that might be affecting its um, other important areas of work and, and sort of fueling the the culture of delay that may or may not be over. Um, I mean, but, but Tess, do you think there's any, any kind of prospect of this legislation being watered down? There have been some kind of suggestions here and there that there are some some backbenchers, Tory backbenchers, who are putting some pressure on Rishi Sunak to potentially water it down or delay. Yeah, I mean, provisions. I don't know. It, I think there there has been so that 
going off what Pippa was talking about, what a Labour MP did propose this amendment, which would require government to publish an exhaustive list of all the legislation uh, that they would be revoked under the sunset clause, uh, so that at least everyone knew what we were talking about. Um, and that that amendment was backed by a lot of MPs, including some conservative ones, including David Davies, who's relatively prominent. Uh, so yeah, there's there's obviously a bit of disquiet about it in the backbenches, but I, whether or not he'll water it down, I, because we, there was a flurry of reports when Sunak became prime minister that he would kind of go back on the rule bill a bit, and there was all sorts of excitement, and then nothing actually transpired. It's just kept going. It's, it's still going through Parliament, um, and you know it's gone through the Commons on the first stage anyway, um, relatively unchanged. It will probably get kind of pulled apart in the Lords, um, but even so. I'm not sure this this bill was in the works, you know, when Boris was prime minister and it's intimately tied up with Brexit. And, you know, he'll want to be seen to to deliver uh, on on kind of Boris's Brexit, Brexit freedoms mandate. Uh, so I don't know. I spoke to George Monbiot um, recently in an interview that's on the ENDS website. And he said predicting what the government would do next would be like trying to predict what Putin will do next. Uh, so I mean, <laughs> go and can go and read more of that. What he, what he said there, if you like. Um, I don't know if I'd use those words myself, but it's it's so hard to know where it's going to go. I think it's going to be all linked to the politics of the moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just like sort of trying to nail jelly to the wall or something. Mm. But, but yeah, it's pretty um, <laughs> very difficult to know what's going to happen. One one more one more big news story, um, and there's there's no more there's no acronyms for this one. So the listeners will be pleased to hear that. That um, we, and, we, and we all know, hopefully, what the EA is. Um, so, and the big green news here is that we're expecting strike action later this week um, on the eighth of February. Workers from the trade unions Unison and Prospect are due to take joint strike action. This is ostensibly about pay and follows months of negotiations and the forcing onto staff of a pay deal that had been rejected by unions. And Pippa, you've been um, speaking to some environmental agency workers who are, who are taking part in a strike action and, and with the aim of trying to find out why they're why they're doing so. What did they what did they tell you? Yeah, so I spoke to three different environment agency employees and unsurprisingly, as Jamie mentioned, um, they all highlighted that low pay was, you know, a, a huge reason as to why they're going on strike. One employee told me that, you know, they have a master's degree, they've been doing the job for 18 years, and yet they're paid well below the average wage. Um, another said that they work with people, people that they rely on to do their job who can't afford to make ends meet while working full time and just kind of said, you know, this is a failure of society. Surely the point of working is to be able to kind of fund your, you know, to be able to, the fact that people can't even make ends meet while while doing this job is, you know, a massive issue. Um, but beyond low pay, I did think it was quite interesting that all three employees who I spoke to um, raised the fact that an inability to do their job because they can no longer attend low impact pollution events is a key reason why morale is so low in the agency. Um, one employee said that it, this flies in the face of what they signed up to do. And another described it as heartbreaking, the fact that they, you know, they want to go out and make a difference, but feel like they're doing it with one hand tied behind their back. Um, and another employee also told me that they were offered a job recently by a water company and, you know, they don't want to accept it. They love working at the environment agency, but if things don't change, then they'll consider it because it would almost double their pay. Yeah, it's, no, it's really, um, really worrying stuff. And I, th- I think uh, I mean, we, we've, we've kind of reported before a little bit about, um, not a little bit, a loss a bit about why <laughs> um, this issue around um, environment agency workers not being able to attend low impact pollution incidents but but I think I think there was there was an interesting nugget of news and analysis which is 
um, which seems to suggest that agency bosses have almost further restricted officers' ability to investigate those, those incidents. Um, can, can you explain a bit more about what's happened there? Yeah. So as you kind of mentioned, it was I think it was in January last year that ENDS reported that Environment Agency had told staff to ignore low impact pollution events. But um, one of the employees that I spoke to told me that despite being told not to attend these, they still had a level of autonomy if they thought that a low impact pollution event could turn into or escalate into something more serious. However, they said that they told me that at a recent national meeting, staff were told that Category 3 incidents were now going to be removed from the timesheets, meaning they can't even consider attending attending these events, even if they were worried it could become something more serious. Um, and they also said that now what happens is when these Category 3 incidences are reported, they're either dealt with by the incident communications team, who the insider told me have never been at an incident and so will just do an assessment and close them, or um, by the officers themselves who are now told to put them down as non-substantiated, meaning there was no evidence of pollution. The insider told me, um, in quotation, that this is a convenient way of closing them down because it just takes them off the system and means there's no record of them. Wow. Mm. <laughs> Gosh, okay. I don't know quite where to go after that. Though. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> fine. Yeah. Tess, you got anything, anything you want to add to that? Oh, I mean... No, it's just like it's a continuation of the story we've been been following, and yeah, the strikes this week, and you know, from what I'm I'm hearing from kind of people in other deaf agencies like Natural England, we could be I think seeing strikes in other in other agencies to come this year. So it's 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 not um it's not going to get any better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's also not 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 just obviously not just the um, agencies work around water pollution where there, there are there are issues that I'm seeing on LinkedIn today about the um, some consultants complaining about the amount of time it takes for bespoke permits to be mm. processed that there's so there's obviously some fairly um, significant issues across the agency that need to be addressed but um, and I, I guess part of it is the agency's leadership would say that the, the kind of pay settlement is actually out of their hands so it's not not entirely on them, but there's um, obviously things need to change if they, they need to address some of these issues. And on, mm. on, on that um, positive note, <laughs> <laughs> brings us to the end of the Big Renew section. And uh, thank you to Pippa and Tess. And if you'd like to read the EA officer's testimony in full, then um, you can head over to endsreport.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find further details of on all the Big Renew stories we've been discussing today. So now this is our deep dive section, and I'm here to talk trash with Luke Walsh, who edits ENDS Report's sister title, ENDS Waste and Bioenergy. Luke also hosts the Burning Issue podcast, which I'll allow him to shamelessly plug later on. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No problem. So so continuing this, this episode's theme, we've got another acronym for you, which is EFW, which stands for Energy from Waste. And there's a good chance that your black bag waste is sent to an incinerator or an energy recovery facility, an ERF, where it's burned to generate electricity. And I know mine is. Um, Luke, um, as background, could you give us a sense of the scale of the UK's energy from waste industry, how much waste is dealt in this way? Yeah, yeah. Well, it started in the sort of mid to early 90s when the landfill tax came in. This this April, that landfill tax is going to go over £100 a tonne for the first time. And obviously that incentivised the building of energy from waste plants. It was the same time as the new Labour government and there were PFI agreements that allowed councils to build their own energy from waste plants. And there was a huge move of taking waste from 
landfilling it, which has been the standard for the past 200 years, into putting it into energy from waste. And I think I looked at the last Tolvik report that came out last year covering 2021, and they forecast about 4.8 million tonnes a year at that point was going to energy from waste plants. Uh, we've got our EWB plant tracker, and that says now there's probably about 60 million tonnes going. But there's also, there's it's a complicated uh, era, area to comment on because some plants, mainly gasification plants, are clearly processing under capacity. So if you look at the headline figures, there are probably plants that are performing at 50% of their load. That's the harder thing. People don't like to talk about that in the industry. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I would say we, we're looking at between somewhere between 15 and 16 million tonnes at the moment going to energy from waste plants. And that's only going to increase as landfill tax goes up and more plants come online. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you about sort of what what trends are we seeing in terms of growth. So so yeah, yeah. It's it's only going to grow for the time being. But I, obviously there are there are policy changes coming on that front, which I think is going which may curtail some of that growth in the longer term. Yeah. Yeah. So so I was going to ask you about the um, I guess one of these kind of key policy themes that we've seen emerge relatively recently is in Scotland and Wales the the devolved administrations there of taking some steps to restrict energy from waste. So with moratoria announced. So it'd be interesting to hear, hear from you a bit more about those. Are they, are they genuine bans, and what what do they apply to? Presumably, if your your plant is consented, it's not going to not be allowed to be built. Yeah, well, they're they're genuine bans. But if you've got a plant with planning permission, that that can still be built. That's that's not affected. It was plants in the in the planning process at the time. So, well, starting with Wales, there was a big plan to convert the Uxmouth coal fire plant to process up to a million, nearly a million tons a year of RDF with mixed with biomass. But that that got pulled because it got called in by by the government as part of its moratorium. That it's depending on who you talk. If you speak to the developers, they say they they dropped it because of the government's moratorium. If you talk to the uh, Welsh government, they say, well, they just pulled out of it and we were willing to discuss it with them. Whether it would have got through, it's it's hard to tell. Um, uh, yeah, the moratorium itself is is pretty set in stone. And it, the Broad Energy tried to develop a 150 tonne a year plant in Wales, and that was, that was blocked under the moratorium, although they also cited uh, its location as being too awkward to get the waste to. So there, there were other considerations there. There are ways around the moratorium in both Wales and Scotland. Wales and England qualify under the small waste incineration plant element, which means you can build plants up to it's around the twenty thousand ton a year mark. Uh, so they they don't they don't need to be signed off by the government. So that would still count in Wales. Wales also allows for some small scale plants, but we've yet to see any go through the planning process. In Scotland, they've also said plants in rural locations could still be allowed. And the Highland Council uh, currently wants to build an 80,000 tonne a year plant and and is in negotiations with the government about whether it's allowed. Currently, it sends its waste 200 miles to Viridor's Dunbar plant, which doesn't seem the most environmentally friendly solution (laughs) to me. And the, 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 uh, I guess the situation in Scotland is quite interesting as well because you've got the, the, the landfill ban that's mm. coming to force soon. So um, quite well that waste is going to go to when that comes, if you've got no, no new incinerators and a landfill ban, then I guess there's a real risk that, that it gets sent over the, over the border to England. Yeah, but it, it already is. Scotland and Wales are both sending waste to England that is landfilled or, or treated in energy recovery. And I know Scotland's moved its landfill ban on biodegradable waste back once before and 
certain people in the industry are saying it could it could happen again. It's 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 interesting. You don't you don't know if if that ban comes in, there's going to be a block on a certain amount of energy of waste going to energy from waste plants, and that's still got to be treated somewhere. And what people are saying to me is that the main ways to export it to England, which it's just moving the problem onto someone else, isn't it? Well, okay, I guess it's, it's having the same environmental impact, isn't it? It's just uh, the different across the border. Conceivably worse because you've got you've got to factor in the transport element of it as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, and and in in terms of there have been questions asked about whether there'll be a, an EFW ban in England, but what's the government said about that? So so far, the government has said no. Defra, Defra has said no. Rishi Sunak has even uh, stood up in Parliament and said no to an incinerator ban for England. At the moment, whether that will hold in the next few years is interesting. As more capacity comes online, there's still there's still issues. There's plants like Derby, other gasification plants running under capacity. If if more capacity comes online, we could get to a point where conceivably there is more pressure to stop plants. And I can I can see it's not going to happen in the next ten years. But conceivably, England could move to follow Scotland and Wales's route in the near future. With not not near future. Maybe in the next decade. I mean, I, I guess one of the, one of the one of the interesting things on the policy front at the moment is the the issue of carbon emissions from energy from waste plants. So, and, and um, I guess the, what the implications are for for how the industry goes about its business. Um, I mean, it's been flagged by the the Climate Change Committee, which is the UK government's climate advisor, which is is um, previously called for measures to curb emissions from energy from waste, and has it's kind of recommended that planning policies should be used to ensure any new plants are are built for carbon capture usage and storage or are ready to adapt to it. And it's also said that existing energy from waste plants should be supported to be retrofitted with carbon capture and storage from the late 2020s onwards. And and, um, there's also a report last week published by Colin Church, who did a review for the Scottish Government on energy from waste. um, And and that that was looking specifically about reducing emissions from residual waste treatment infrastructure. Um, And and he did a report last year, I think, that led to the, the ban being put in place in, in Scotland and this latest report it kind of makes the point that energy from waste is is a it's a more climate friendly way of managing waste than, than landfill and at the moment it's more more practical than any other available approach but but it does kind of talk about options for reducing the carbon impact so the main one it put forward was this decade from stopping plants from incinerating plastic I mean, do you think that idea is kind of a, a feasible one? Is that something that can yeah, be done easily? Yeah, I think I think that's the way it's going. Um, you look at the we the church review at the at the time we're talking now. It only came out last week. It hasn't been the the government hasn't responded to its recommendations yet. But as you as you said, the, with the first review he published, that led to the moratorium and was pretty much broadly the the government accepted all the recommendations. So you'd have to anticipate that sometime towards the end of March, early April, perhaps they will they will also accept these recommendations as well. And I think the banning of plastic is something that's going to, obviously it's going to happen in Scotland, I would imagine by the end of the decade. And they've only got till 2025 to start putting in the, the infrastructure to do that. Uh, it, that I could imagine being rolled out to the UK and Wales as well. Obviously, there's still an element of plastic that's got to go somewhere. There is plastic that can't be recycled, and that at the moment has to go to energy recovery or landfill. And as you also said, uh, the the Church Review and various works by DEFRA have shown how uh, the UK's CO2 equivalent generated from waste management has fallen over the last decade as waste has moved from landfill to energy from waste. It has increased in the amount of um, emissions that have been put out. But overall, the majority of uh, research says that it's better 
you, you mentioned the carbon capture element, and that's got huge interest from people in the energy from wayside, mainly because there are the possibility of subsidies coming in. You've got big companies like Drax who are in the bioenergy side. They're putting a lot into uh, carbon capture, and nearly every energy from waste plant is developing some sort of technology. You can get into that. There's all different people on the market at the moment going in for it, but there, there'll be the subsidies for it, and there's the potential for EFW plants to be carbon neutral, which um, it'll be arguable of how carbon neutral they are. But if they've got the carbon capture technology, which does work, and it's it's installed and fully operational in plants in Norway, uh, it's it's coming. Runcorn Run in Liverpool are building it. It's it, it'll be it'll be here in the next few years operationally. Uh, the government, whether the government continues to subsidise it, is the is the uh, thing. We'll, we'll just have to see over the next few years. Yeah, yeah, and, and I guess another driver here would be the the. the it seems likely that the energy from waste waste incineration is going to be included within the the UK's emissions trading scheme, and 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 I think the same is on the cards for for the EU's as well. So presumably that that will then push operators to have to go down that route in terms of technology to to kind of avoid paying a lot of uh, emissions trading charges. Yeah, I have been told that if you install the carbon capture technology, there is a chance that they could completely avoid the uh, ETS scheme. It's a fu- it's a funny one, the ETS scheme, because the government fought a legal case against a protester to block the UK and the, to block energy from waste plants going into the ETS, but then later in the year decided to pretty much mirror what the EU is doing currently and put, put plants into the scheme. Energy from waste plants themselves are against are against their entry, whether they you would say they would be, but also their their argument is they don't have any say over the feedstock they process. Whereas a coal plant knows it's getting a coal lump of a certain calorific value, and it can process that and deal with it for for the uh, emissions trading scheme. Waste it's different. Every time they've got it, they've got to look through the feedstock. They're not responsible for what they get, and they 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 find it awkward. The government clearly wants to have them in there though, so they're going to have to deal with it. And carbon capture is probably the way to mitigate the costs of that going forward i'd say mm, yeah so so I, I guess we might we might expect potentially kind of tighter regulation as well for the environment agency if that if that's the kind of route that policy is is going but but certainly that they're from what your your plant track seems to be saying is that there's a there's a lot of capacity that's coming on stream at the moment and the, these these facilities are going to be be around for a long time so yeah, I think you're right. Like we've we've seen over the last ten years, the Environment Agency mandated that plants should be able to supply heat wherever possible, and that was largely well, that was included in the plan, but it was ignored. And I think now the Environment Agency is going to lean on plants to start developing carbon capture, and hopefully that will actually become a reality. The going back to the Church Review again, that one of its recommendations was heat supply, and in Scotland the market for heat is much is much more important. So that that's been pushed forward. So I think we've got the heat coming through. We'll have carbon capture coming through. The Environment Agency, there's more issues you can talk to there about um, their person power and whether whether, they, whether the EA will be able to cover all of these plants. But carbon capture seems to be the thing, and I can see them taking that on in the near future and forcing more plants into that market. Mm, okay. And, and last thing I'd like to talk to you about is the, is the issue of, um, of local opposition. So... Um, this, this is this is kind of anecdotal, but it seems when when looking at sort of stories about energy from waste applications, planning applications, there, there, there always seems to be a kind of a lot of local oppositions. And what what, what arguments the local opponents do, do they is it the climate change argument, or are they talking more about 
things like air quality or plants being bad neighbours? Well, bad neighbours. I think the the argument you hear most is the HGV movements. Uh, see, pe- people say that it's being built in a more rural location. If it is being built in a more rural location, and they say it's too many HGVs coming down certain roads, that's that's the one I see that gets most traction. There's also there's there's an, there's the overcapacity argument. I don't think the UK is at overcapacity yet as there are lots of plants that are in the planning stages that won't ever get developed just because things fall aside. And I think also, I'd say the NGOs have probably won the argument with politicians and politicians are have moved to a position where they are perhaps anti-energy recovery and they'll it's also it's not a vote winner is it if you if there's an energy from waste plant going to be built in your town if you say oh yeah that's a great idea <laughs> the majority of people will be against it so an MP will stand up and protest against it and try to get it called in or try to get the government to even if they're not even if they think it's the best way to manage the waste they can say it's just, you know in the same way as a councillor on a on a planning committee might say I'm voting against this even if there isn't a legitimate reason for it they can turn around to the people that elect them at the next election and say well I voted against it and it was forced on us by so and so there is a push against energy from waste plants but I think since we moved from landfill people didn't really see landfill landfill was out of sight buried in the countryside, somewhere no one looked. These energy from waste plants can often be in the city. You know, if you're if you're in London, you'll go past the cell chip one near near on the roads up to London Bridge, the massive quarry one in the southeast, the Beddington one uh, in near Croydon, or the Edmonton one in North London. You can't, you can't avoid them if you travel around London, and they they're, mm. they're in obvious locations, and that annoys people because in fairness I've got a field behind my house and if someone was building an energy for waste plant on it maybe it wouldn't be the most beneficial thing for property prices but it is the best way to treat waste yeah I mean it's interesting isn't it because I think I think there's a, there's an element that in any kind of development that you, you, you put yeah. forward has a lot of opposition even like well homes in a lot of play, a lot of cases and whether whether the Opposition is 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 any different to, to these facilities or, or or not? I guess some of the arguments might be different, but um, it's uh, certainly something that, that I, I guess, I guess um, the industry has to sort of spend a lot of time and money trying to trying to navigate. Yeah, they then they have been they have been the best one I think that I could point to was Corey's original plant that they built in Belvedere in 2012. I think it went into operation, and they had a guy who went out and he went all because I, I live in the area, so I know that. And he went out and he went to all he attended all the residents' meetings, all the thing, and he talks about the plant, and it got accepted eventually. Uh, again, and there were there was still some opposition from the MPs and MPs on the other side of the river from the Thames to the plant, but. Um, They've they've got permission for their second plant now, and I think that, you know it, it is things you have to engage with people, don't you? Mm. They, the majority might not in, like what you're going to say, but I'd, I'd say the energy from waste sector hasn't been good at that in the past, but is doing so more because we're getting to a point where we're coming to the last few plants that are going to be built, and they need to be able to convince areas that these plants should be built there for the reason that it's more environmental than sending your waste to be incinerated in the Netherlands. Or, or Scandinavia, or worse, landfilled somewhere. So yeah, I think yeah, I think we're getting there. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks, Luke. Um, I, I said I was going to give you an opportunity to shamelessly plug your your podcast. So if if you'd like to, you feel free to go ahead. Ah, uh, thank you very much. Yes, the Burning Issue podcast is available from all the usual download 
uh, areas. It features me talking to figures from the waste industry. We're starting the second series at the end of this month. And as just mentioned, we've got Colin Church on the first episode talking about his review. So hopefully we'll be able to shed more light on that then. And I appreciate the opportunity for the plug. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our Knowing Me, Knowing EU section. Simon Pixton and Alice Fillon are here to bring you the latest on green policy from Brussels. And I'm really hoping they're going to trump the rest of us in the acronym stakes. What have you got for us, Simon and Alice? Thanks, Jamie. Alice, I thought we could do a little pop quiz. Okay. What does VDL, GDIP, NCA, CRA mean? Mm. Are we choosing the best boy band, Simon? No, I wish. In fact, they're all to do with the European Commission's new plan to tackle American green subsidies. Okay, so GDIP is the Green Deal Industrial Plan? That's absolutely correct, yeah. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Okay, so what what's the actual purpose of uh, GDIP? <laughs> so to give you a bit more uh, context, Ursula von der Leyen, VDL, mm. the European Commission president, set out last week her Green Deal Industrial Plan. This was a massively hyped strategy from the European Commission on how the EU should best respond to subsidies from the US for things like wind farms, hydrogen, uh, carbon capture storage. Okay, um, so all types of green investment. Ex- exactly, exactly. One of the things that has happened since the US passed its Inflation Reduction Act last year has been a surge of anxiety from European industry, member states, people in the European Parliament, and so on, about the risk that green investment will leave Europe and mm. travel to America where they have an extremely generous subsidy regime now in place for things like generating green energy and using green energy or even fossil fuels to create hydrogen. Okay, so um, the Green Deal industrial plan is um, the EU's response to that to try and level the playing field. Are there any major problems with that plan? Well, um, I mean, in some ways, we weren't expecting really major legislative changes in this plan. It's more like a set of actions that the European Commission is either already working on or um, a, a list of ideas that the Commission has for how it can attract more investment into the EU and also retain the investment that's currently here. Um, among those is this NZIA, which I'm calling it. I actually don't know if there's yet a settled pronunciation, whether it's NZIA or NZIA, but anyway, um, which is the Net Zero Industry Act. So that's due in March, we think, and it's probably going to take the form of a regulation that will do things like make permitting easier for um, infrastructure related to net zero technologies. So things like if you want to build a battery manufacturing plant, then it would be a little bit easier. It, it would potentially do other things as well, although these are all still a bit up in the air because the Commission has only really started working on them very recently. Um, another part of the Commission's GDIP is the Critical Raw Materials Act. We've known about this for a while now. Critical Raw Materials Act would be about Europe securing its supply of things like rare earth metals, uh, lithium, um materials that it sees as being really essential for industries like renewable energy generation and hydrogen. We didn't get that many more details about these things in the plan. So the plan's measures seem to go the permitting, basically the simplifying permitting regulations route rather than major subsidies route. Well, yeah, this is, I think, one of the 
main observations people had about the plan. In some ways, the European Commission has its hands tied here. Uh, the EU, unlike the US, doesn't have this almighty government that can simply funnel money towards key industries. It's got a very strict state aid regime. So that means that EU governments have to, have to if they're choosing to subsidize industries, have to apply for permission from the European Commission. Yep. And that is an ideological mechanism, but it also reflects the fact that some member states are much richer than others. So yeah. if member states were allowed to subsidize their, their own industries willy-nilly, it simply wouldn't be a level playing field. Germany could do it, but Bulgaria wouldn't be able to afford to subsidize to the same extent. So the commission in the GDIP has proposed reforming its state aid rules and introducing a temporary framework uh, that would allow more state aid, but it would... It's also thinking about how it can do that in a way that would stop the richer EU countries and richer EU regions from totally dominating that. So it would yeah, actually address the inequalities exactly, that already yeah. exist. Yeah. So basically, the idea it's come up with is that poorer regions would be eligible for more state aid as a percentage of the overall investment in a project. Yeah. The other big thing that is worth noting, of course, is that there there isn't that much new money in the GDIP, um, and this is because. Yeah. This is largely reflecting the political reality where Germany simply is just more conservative financially. More conservative, and it's yeah. got a pretty big influence on yeah on the financial politic of the EU. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is this thing the European Sovereignty Fund, the ESR. Yeah, um, which the Commission first floated in December. That's already had a kind of mit- mixed reception. It's it's just at the stage, it's not yet a proposal, it's something the Commission's thinking about. That's going to be a tough sell to Germany. Um, but the European Sovereignty Fund would be more money um, if if they can get it off the ground. And it's that would be mainly targeted towards the kind of digital side of the, of okay. the, of the so green transition. So digital new technologies to help with uh, the net zero transition? Absolutely. But things like it would be things like microcomputers, artificial intelligence, biotechnology. So yeah. as well as net zero technologies, it's kind of a much broader um, scope. Is there, has there been some concerns about that kind of general broader scope? Because that seems to be a bit of a trend across a lot of the measures. Yeah, it, I think you're not wrong. Um, uh, some of the green groups are worried that the way that the commission is talking about net zero technologies seems very, very broad and quite vague. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly with the European Sovereignty Fund, actually it's not particularly focused on um, zero carbon technologies. It's, 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 it's to do with computing and um, Yeah, it's trying to allow for, I think the, the idea behind it would probably be to um, allow for an emerging technology that we don't actually yet know about, for instance. Yeah. So just allow it for innovation, but yeah. obviously different industry groups or different NGOs might have concerns around that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that's also interesting about the response to the GDIP is that stakeholders are broadly unhappy with it. So Mm. on the green group side, they're a bit suspicious of the race towards encouraging new national subsidies, um, both from a level playing field perspective between member states, but also because they really don't want this to come at the expense of the EU's big overhaul of its green regulations, yeah. um, which generally speaking have been to make regulations stricter. And they, they, there's some concern that this is going in the other direction. Industry, on the other hand, also finds a lot to criticize about this. And this is because, I mean, they're pushing for 
more more simplified regulation yeah. so yeah um, like fewer kind of like you know less red tape this yeah, is absolutely. what we all want uh, <laughs> i mean in some ways it? in some ways it's the classic it's the classic debate that's been had in brussels you know for decades and decades yeah and not just in brussels not just yeah so essentially it sounds like no one likes the gdip particularly so in conclusions can we say if we are choosing the best boy band gdip is not the one <laughs> back to you jamie so that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley, Luke Walsh, Simon Pixton and Alice Fillon. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.